The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. You know, back in the old days, uh, I can say that because I turned 45 this week. So I, I officially can refer to days gone by as the old days. Um, so for those of you who define the, the old days differently than I do, uh, I'll define it a little more clearly. Back when I was a kid, in the days before GPS, does that locate it a little better for you? Whenever one would decide to set out for a family vacation or a trip to some faraway place, whoever was planning and navigating the trip, maybe dad, maybe mom, would prepare for the journey and part of the preparation would usually involve uh, pulling out a Rand McNally map. Do you remember those? Uh, they had them in book form if you wanted to spend a few extra dollars. Or if you wanted to just go cheap, you could get the one that folds into a million pieces. That once you unfold it, you can never put it back. Do you remember those? They come out real easily, but you could spend all day trying to fold that sucker back up and it never worked. But you would pull out a map of some sort, and you would uh, look at where you are, and you would identify where you're going, and you would sort of uh, follow the lines on the map, and you would plot your journey. You would look for the, the major highways, and you would look for all the side roads. You would want to identify all the topography along the way. Are there mountain peaks that we want to make sure to... To dwell on? Are there side roads that we need to take? What are the, the main roads that we want to make sure we stay on so that we don't get lost on our journey? You plotted your course, you planned your way, uh, you made sense of the journey before you set out, so you knew where you were going, and so you could get there safely. This morning we find ourselves starting a new journey together. Last week we finished up uh, an eight-month journey through the book of James. This morning, we set out on a whole new journey. It's like a vacation has come again. And uh, we, are, uh, we have a, a journey in front of us. Who knows how long it will take us? Um, but it's sure to be an exciting trip. I can assure you of that. But our task this morning is much like the, uh, the preparation for the family vacation. We're going to sort of pull out the road map here, and we're going to sort of chart the course, and we are going to introduce the book of Hebrews. We're going to try and identify uh, the things you need to know about how to get from here to the end of the book, all the highlights that are important as we make our way down the road. We're going to try and identify the main highways that we're going to travel and we might identify a few side roads that we might pull off on and, and dwell a while on the way. Uh, we're going to try and identify the mountain peaks that we need to stop and look at and make sure we don't miss. And we're going to also try and identify the challenges that we might face along the road. Some of those hairpin turns that uh, we're going to have to slow down and work hard and be real alert to make sure we make it around safely. So that's our task this morning, to introduce the journey, to lay out the road map so that we know where we're going for this next season in the life of our church. If you're a guest with us and it's your first time, uh, you've uh, landed at a really great moment for us. Uh, you get to start the journey with us, and it's our, our prayer that you would uh, come along for the ride all the way to the end. What we're going to notice right at the outset of the book of Hebrews 
is that it stands in remarkably stark contrast to the book of James. Um, I don't, I didn't, uh, I can't confess any real uh, sort of master plan in choosing Hebrews. It just sort of stood out to me. I asked what people were interested in, and Hebrews kept popping up on the radar. And uh, I did at least uh, forward think enough to, to realize that I wanted to do something that sort of brought us back to a focus on Christ, and, and Hebrews certainly will do that. Um, but as I thought this week of the contrast moving from James to Hebrews, um, it, is a, it is a stark contrast on a lot of fronts that you will notice almost immediately as we launch into this particular study. James was sort of a, a straightforward, easy-to-understand text. James was a man who spoke in short sentences. He used very clear language, very direct language, very easy-to-understand language and rhetoric. As we move to Hebrews, we find ourselves in a a letter that is much more complex, a letter that requires much more work, uh, a letter that requires uh, a whole lot more uh, depth of thought and sort of analysis of the argumentation that's being presented. And so James being simple, straightforward, James uh, making it very easy for us, Hebrews is going to be more complex. It's going to be a little more challenging. As you uh, read it in your uh, uh, private, uh, quiet time at home, you'll find this right at the outset as you read through Hebrews. Have any of you begun to already read a little bit in Hebrews? If you have, you probably have already identified exactly what I'm talking about. James is very simple on the surface. Hebrews is challenging in many places. And so we'll face those challenges together. James is focused almost exclusively on practical living. There is very little challenging theology to work through in James. It's all about faith that's lived out in life and the practical, direct ways faith affects how we behave. When we move to Hebrews, we're dealing with a much more developed theology. In fact, Hebrews is known as one of the greatest works in theology in the entire New Testament. And so we will be delving into theology a bit deeper than we did in James. But don't worry, we won't dwell on the level of theology that's above your head. We're going to always walk through theology with the goal of bringing it back around to asking the question, so what? What difference does this make in my life? And how does it apply to me? Just pointing out that it'll be a little more challenging to get there than it has been for James. James is not at all concerned with the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is incredibly concerned with the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is saturating the pages of this 13-chapter letter called Hebrews. It relies heavily on the Old Testament. and In that regard, we could call it a very Jewish letter. The author of Hebrews assumes that his audience is very familiar with the Old Testament. There are no less than 38 direct quotes of the Old Testament in just the 13 chapters we have in this letter. So 38 direct quotes, that's a lot. Apart from direct quotes, there's at least another 55 sort of allusions to Old Testament texts and imagery. It's been said by some that in order to understand Hebrews, you have to have a working understanding of Leviticus because so much of what Hebrews talks about relies on what we find in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. So don't be surprised if we pull off the main highway from time to time and we take a side road trip 
through Leviticus for a moment. That will help us to understand Hebrews. And so we may do that from time to time. Another distinct difference between James and Hebrews you're going to find is that James almost never mentioned Jesus. He mentioned Jesus in the first verse. And apart from that, we don't run across him mentioning Jesus anymore, at least directly. Hebrews is a letter that is all about Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ. The first thing that the author comes at us with in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, is this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, we are confronted right out of the gate at a rich theology of the person and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't let up till the very end. And so you'll notice a distinct focus on Christ. And it's going to be glorious for us as we look at it and as we look to him throughout the journey. Hebrews, if you're sort of trying to locate it in the Bible, it comes right before James. It's the first book or the first letter in a section of the Bible called the General Epistles or the General Letters. Um, If you're wondering just how these things are organized and how they fit into your Bible, the General Letters are called General Letters simply because they don't specifically identify who the audience is to whom they're written. Like Romans is not a general letter because we know to whom it's written. It's written to whom? The Romans, the people in Rome. Colossians, the people at Colossae. You know, Ephesians, the folks at Ephesus. The general letters are called general because we don't specifically know and the letters don't identify to whom they're written. So they're grouped together in this section called the general letters. If you want to know why they're organized the way they are, it's very, very simple. The longest one is first and it goes from longest to shortest in the end. So that's where they find where Hebrews sort of lands in the canon of Scripture. Now, Hebrews is called a letter, but it's not a normal letter. If you look at the other letters in the New Testament, letters, they normally have a formal greeting and some identification of who the author is and some greetings to the people to whom the author is writing. Hebrews doesn't have any of those trademarks. It ends like a letter, but it begins like a sermon. And so it's actually an interesting kind of literature that we don't see really in other works in the New Testament. The author calls his work in the middle of it a word of exhortation, which is a phrase used to describe a sermon in a synagogue. And so what we likely have here in this book of Hebrews is a sermon that was probably delivered orally, at least, at least uh, uh, initially, Uh, delivered in maybe one sitting or perhaps a couple of sittings that's been compiled and put into a written sort of a form. So if you want to know sort of what kind of literature we're dealing with, you could just call it sort of a sermonic epistle. How do you like that term? And I didn't make that up. I wish I did, though. It's a good one. A sermonic letter. It's it's essentially a sermon written with some uh, sort of marks of a letter. And it's a great sermonic epistle. It stands out as one of the great books in the New Testament, although it is one of the sort of the least explored um, 
from pulpits around uh, the country. And so we're going to explore it together. John Calvin said this about Hebrews. He said, since the epistle addressed to the Hebrews contains a full discussion of the eternal divinity of Christ, his supreme government and only priesthood, and as these things are so explained in it that the whole power and work of Christ are set forth in the most graphic way, it rightly deserves to have a place of honor, the place and honor of an invaluable treasure in the church. As I've studied it this week, I've been more convinced that Calvin is right. It is an invaluable treasure. And you're going to find that, too, as we study it together. R.C. Sproul said this about Hebrews. He said, if I were cast into prison and allowed but one book, it would be the Bible. If I were allowed only one book of the Bible, it would be the epistle to the Hebrews, because it contains our most comprehensive discussion on the redemption wrought for us and the sacrifice of Jesus. So if you, if you know R.C. Sproul, one of the great theologians of our day, recently passed away, uh, to say something like that, that, that would be the one book he would want if he had to choose one out of the whole New Testament canon, uh, that says a lot about this book and the treasures that sort of lie ahead for us. So it's an exciting book to study. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at what he's done for us in sacrifice of himself on the cross. We're going to see the implications of that for our life. And we're going to see all sorts of points of application along the way that are going to be just great. Um, just great. But in order to sort of map our course, we need to, to try and address some issues. We need to identify who, who wrote the book. Um, we need to try and identify who it's written to. Uh, some of the sort of things that are foundational to understanding a book. Um, now I'm going to tell you, we're going to talk about this for about the next 15 minutes. And at the end of 15 minutes, you're going to get the same answer I'm going to give you in one sentence right now. We don't know. Most of these answers to these questions. Who wrote the book? Well, we don't know. To whom was it written? Well, we really don't know. Where was it written? We're not exactly sure. When was it written? We'll take a good guess. It makes it really unique in that regard. But let's walk through some of that because we can shed some light on some of those questions even though we can't definitively come to a conclusion about any of them. What we know about the author is he does not identify himself in the book. He doesn't say who he is. And so that tells us at the outset he doesn't want to be identified or doesn't feel the need to be identified for some reason known primarily to him and perhaps to his original uh, readers. He does give us some clues in the text, but not enough clues to definitively identify anyone. The great church father Origen said this. He said, but who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. That's it. God knows. God knows who wrote the letter. We don't know. Origen said some other things we'll talk about in a minute. Some of the most common suggestions of authorship for, for Hebrews... Um, probably the most common one over the centuries has been the, the Apostle Paul. It's often grouped with Paul's other letters. Uh, this has been a, a matter of debate, hot debate, theological debate for some time. I'm sure you've been sitting on the edge of your seat debating this all week. Did Paul write Hebrews or not? I wish I could um, uh, sort of solve that for you. Uh, but I'll just suffice it to say that although at different times in the history of the church that has been sort of the common knowledge or common thought process, very few theologians today really hold that Paul wrote this letter. For some reasons, like 
the language is very different in Hebrews than what we find in Paul's other letters that we know were written by him. The vocabulary, the style of writing, the kind of imagery that he employs in his arguments, um, sort of the theological motifs that play out throughout the book are just sort of unique to Hebrews. They don't relate really to what we know of Paul's writing in other places. Uh, Paul normally, in his letters, identified himself, and there is no identification with him in this letter. For instance, Ephesians 1.1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And you could just trek it right on through the rest of Paul's letters. They almost all start like that. Um, and Hebrews has no indication in it that Paul uh, wrote it. Paul had a favorite phrase that he used over 90 times. He referred to Jesus as Christ Jesus over 90 times in his in his letters. Uh, Jesus is, is really exclusively focused on in the letter of Hebrews, and yet he's never referred to that way as Christ Jesus, which would cause us to doubt that Paul was the one who was writing this. Probably most uh, compelling to me, though, is we find in the book that the writer says he heard the gospel from those who received it from Christ. In second, excuse me, I was about to say second Hebrews. Um, in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, here's what he says. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. It was a gospel who was declared first by the Lord, and he says it was attested to us by those who had heard. So he's identifying himself, and we'll mention this a couple times, as a second-generation Christian. He is saying, I did not get the gospel directly from the Lord. It was delivered to me and to those to whom he's writing by someone else who had gotten it directly from the Lord. Does that make sense? You can just nod. Okay. Um, and when we read like Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that we know Paul wrote, Paul says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul said that there, and again in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul claimed to have received the gospel directly from Christ. The writer of Hebrews uh, argues, it doesn't argue, he just states that he received it from someone who had also received it from Jesus Christ, but he did not receive it directly. And so, again, that points us to someone other than the Apostle Paul. Uh, there have been a host of folks who have been uh, sort of suggested as possibilities. Uh, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, Priscilla and Aquila, Clement of Rome, and a host of other people. At the end of the day, we don't have any idea who wrote the book. We don't have any idea. We don't know. The letter is formally anonymous. What we do know is that the author fully expects that his readers know who he is and are well acquainted with him. We know that much. So separated by time and history, we don't know who wrote it, but the ones who originally read it fully understood who the writer was and his relationship to them. Uh, Origen did say this about it. He said, if I were to venture my own opinion, I would say that the thoughts are the apostles, that is Paul's, but the style and construction reflect someone who recalled the apostles' teachings and interpreted them. 
And that seems like a fairly reasonable assumption to me as well. What do we know about the author? Here's what we know. We don't know his name, but we do know some things about him. We know he was male because as we work our way through the book, the pronouns in the text give this away. We know that he was a gifted and an eloquent writer. He displays a very impressive command of language. He displays a very impressive command of rhetoric, of argumentation, of knowing how to make a point. He, he, he's a, a very well-educated writer. He, he's very gifted at taking an Old Testament text and doing a clear exposition of it and then giving the, not only an exposition of what it means, but interpreting it for his current audience. So he's a gifted and eloquent writer. He's very well educated. He's likely Jewish. He has a very strong command of the Old Testament in all of the details of the sacrificial system and all of the sort of details of the Old Testament uh, layout and worship. He's clear about these things, and he alludes to them regularly. And we know that he was a second-generation believer. Those are the things that we know about the author, and that's it. Apart from that, that's all that we can say. The the recipients, uh, we don't know much more about them. Uh, Who was he writing to? There are several lines of evidence that indicate that the people to whom he was writing were primarily Jewish Christians. Primarily Jewish Christians. Okay? Um, And when we say Jewish Christians, what we mean by that are people who had formerly been practicers of Judaism, who had probably grown up under that religious faith and had been actively practicing that, but at some point heard the gospel... Uh, of Jesus, had believed in Christ, had placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, and had converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jews who had become Christians after believing the gospel. Um, That is the primary audience of the book. The title of the book, uh, you see, is called The Letter to the Hebrews. That indicates to us uh, that they were Hebrews or that they were Jewish. Although that title uh, is... is not in the earliest manuscripts we have. It was probably added on at some point fairly early in the history of the church. Um, it does tell us that at least very early in the history of the church, they understood that these were Hebrew people to whom the letter was written. So that's a fair assumption. Um, again, we, we would identify these folks as being Jewish because so much of it deals with the Old Testament and the Old Testament worship and Old Testament imagery and Old Testament sacrifice and all these things that related to ancient Judaism. And it's clear that the author knows that his readers are very well versed in these things and understand them. So they were likely Jewish people. Um, And the big issue that we run into as we walk through the book of Hebrews, I mean, this is the big issue. The big issue is there are among these Jewish Christians, because they are facing severe persecution, there is a real temptation apparently among them to abandon their faith in Christ and to go back to the worship of the Jewish faith, to go back to their old Judaistic worship. Because, at least in their minds, this would relieve the persecution and the suffering that they're facing. And so we'll find as we work through here that the writer to the Hebrews is, is clearly has his, in his target these Jewish Christians and his goal is to encourage them not to turn back from faith in Christ and to go back to where they've come from. The people who would go back to Judaism in general are people who began there. 
Now, it's here that John MacArthur sort of uh, steps into the conversation with some things that I think are important to mention. He agrees that primarily Jewish Christians are in view. But he also notes, and I tend to agree with him on this point, that it seems that although primarily we're dealing with Jewish Christians, there are interspersed throughout the book uh, some parts of the text, some warnings to people who are groups other than Jewish Christians. And he identifies two groups. He identifies Jewish non-Christians who are intellectually convinced. All right, what does that mean? That means that these are people attached to the, to the New Testament church to, to whom he's writing. They're attached to the church. They have an intellectual uh, sort of belief that Jesus is who he said he was. But they had not come to full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed the truth of Christ, but they had not submitted themselves in faith to the Lordship of Jesus. They had come part of the way to Christ, but had not fully engaged, if you will. They had, they had intellectually believed, but they had not submitted to Christ as Lord of their lives. So theirs was an intellectual faith only. And there are some warnings, primarily in chapter 9, that seem to be aimed at those who find themselves in that position. And that's going to be particularly important to us, because that's going to be a very relevant issue to translate into our day. Because perhaps even more in our day, definitely even more in our day, than in the day in which this book was written, is there a temptation for people who are not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but only have an intellectual sort of a belief in Jesus attached to the church. And they need to hear those warnings that the author of Hebrews is going to lay out to people who find themselves in that position. And then there's a third group, Hebrew people who are non-Christians who are not convinced. Not convinced at all. Just people who have attached themselves to the church out of curiosity or for some other purpose, but they have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're still waffling. They're still wavering. They're still considering. They're still trying to figure these things out. They haven't decided yet what they believe. And so we find in like chapter 9, verse 27, a verse and a statement that says this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That's a statement that you make to somebody who does not know Christ. That is a warning. That's a warning to an unbeliever. And so I think MacArthur is right in this. I think that there, primarily we're dealing with Jewish believers who are being persecuted, but interspersed, we're going to have to stop and identify some other groups to whom the author speaks. Now, what's the situation? The situation is these people are being severely persecuted for their faith. If you have your Bible, look to chapter 10 of Hebrews, if you would. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Listen to that. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You hear in that little section the author talking about a day in the past when they had suffered severe persecution. 
And what we find is that they had suffered persecution, they had experienced the law, and now the persecution had come back perhaps more severely. So you're dealing with people who've been through this before, who are now going through it again, and they're wondering, do I have what it takes to go through this again? Can I stick it out this time? Or maybe I should just give up and go back to where I came from. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's important. They're suffering, but the suffering has not yet reached the level of what? They're not being killed, right? Isn't that what he's saying? Your suffering has not yet reached the level of shedding blood. He's saying, you're suffering, but you haven't, it hasn't risen to the level of martyrdom yet. I don't know how encouraging that is. Uh, but the point he's going to make when we get to chapter 12 is this, that Jesus suffered all the way through death. You're suffering like him, but you haven't been called to suffer that far yet. And he's going to call them to look to Jesus to help them. Through it, because they have a great high priest who understands what they're dealing with, because he's been there and done that, and he's merciful and he's great, and he'll help them. That's going to be the message. But because of all this, there's this great temptation to revert back to Judaism, and so the author writes this letter really with two purposes in mind, and you need to know these things. Number one, he writes to warn this congregation against going back to Judaism to avoid persecution. Life is hard, he's saying, and it's going to get harder. But do not abandon Christ and go back. He's got some very severe warnings about that. And I'm going to tell you, again here, is a point of great application for our day. While persecution of the church in America today is not anywhere near what it was, these Jewish believers to whom Hebrews is written... Uh, you and I can watch the temperature rise around us. And we can see that it's not getting better, it is getting worse. And who knows with what speed that's going to move and accelerate, perhaps in my lifetime, perhaps in my son's lifetime. We might find ourselves in exactly the very position that these Hebrew believers were in. And I will venture to say to you that when the persecution heats up, to the level of plundering property and losing jobs and losing material possessions. When it comes to the place where American Christians have to sacrifice severely for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be many who will be tempted, just like these believers, to abandon Christ and to go back to what they were before, to provide relief from the pain. And if that day comes in my lifetime, if it comes in yours, the words of this letter will be invaluable. And the warnings will be critical. So he writes to warn them. But he also writes to encourage them. Not just to warn them about the danger of abandoning Christ and going back, but to encourage them to persevere in their faith, to press on to maturity, to look to Christ. That is the bulk of the book. Don't give up. Don't go back. Hold fast to your faith. 
Look to Jesus. Press on to maturity. Don't give up. Look to Christ. He'll help you. He's a compassionate high priest. He sympathizes with your weakness. You have access to Him directly. And when you go to Him, you will find mercy and you will find grace and He will help you in your times of need. We see it all throughout the book. Hebrews 4.14 Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In verse 16 of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 6.1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. All these let us statements. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Hebrews 12.1, let us lay aside every weight. Let us run with endurance the race. Do you hear the theme? Hold fast. Run with endurance. Hold your confession. Don't give up. Lay aside everything that's getting in the way. Keep after Christ. That's the consistent message all throughout. It's an encouragement to persevere in their faith. If you're a believer who's been struggling in your faith, who's been finding it hard to persevere and to pursue Christ and to maintain your walk with Christ, if you've been tempted to slip and slide backwards, Hebrews is going to be a great book for you because you're going to consistently hear your Creator, your Heavenly Father, through the words of this anonymous writer, constantly encouraging you, keep the faith. Don't turn back. Press on to maturity. Keep running the race. Don't let life and don't let circumstances and don't let people and don't let pain and don't let anything else sidetrack you or weigh you down or knock you out of the race. Keep on running. It's going to be the encouragement you hear. The writer of Hebrews is going to be the coach of the team and the marathon and the Olympics who's running alongside saying, don't slow down, don't give up, don't fall back. Keep going, keep stretching, keep running, keep giving it your all till you get to the finish line. That's Hebrews for us. That's Hebrews. We don't know when this book was written. Um, clues would uh, lead us to believe that the date was somewhere in the, the 60s of the first century. It's not the 1960s for those of you who may be wondering or drifting asleep at this point. It's the 60s, like the first 60s, you know what I mean? First century kind of 60s. Uh, we know it wasn't a real early book because he tells the people to whom he's writing, um, number one, they're second-generation believers. And beyond that, he tells them, by now you, you've had enough time that you ought to be mature enough to be teachers, and they're not. And so it seems that a good bit of time has passed, not only since the gospel got to them, but since they believed it and have had an opportunity to mature. So it's probably not an early book. Um, the book is mentioned by uh, a historian by the name of Clement of Rome in one of his writings in A.D. 95. So we know it was written before that. Best guess, somewhere in the 60s is the best idea. We don't know where the location is of the writer or those to whom he is writing. The only clue we have is in Hebrews 13:24, which simply says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So many would say that, that Rome is probably the, the location uh, because there are people from Italy who are sending greetings 
that kind of makes sense. But that's as far as we can go with any of that. Mid-60s, probably Rome. Apart from any of that, we don't know much more. Okay? That gives us sort of the background. What are the themes? And I'm just going to list these because we're going to deal with them all in much more detail over these next months. I just want to give you the highlights of the themes, and they're all right there on the screen for you. How do you like that? The primary theme is the absolute superiority of Jesus. We see that all throughout this book. It begins at the beginning, and it goes right on to the end. Jesus is greater than everything and anything and anyone. Jesus is greater. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to Melchizedek. He's superior to all the prophets. He's superior to the tabernacle, superior to the temple. He's superior to all the sacrifices. He's superior to the whole priesthood. He is superior to all who have come before him. There is none like Christ. There is no one, never has been, never will be anyone who is like him. He is matchless. He is matchless. And on top of that, he ushers in a new covenant that's superior to the old one. Everything about Christ and what he brings is superior. That's what we're going to find. And so aside from that, to turn back from Christ is to turn away from something superior and to turn toward something that is what? Lesser. So if you're thinking about abandoning Christ and turning to something else, the author is going to say, Jesus is greater than anything. Who are you going to turn to that's not less than him? You'd be a fool. That's going to be his argument, because Christ is absolutely superior. The second thing we're going to find is God is a God who speaks. That's good news, right? We're going to find that God isn't a God who, as some would would sort of identify him in our culture, who's, who's out there somewhere, who's just kind of uh, set the earth spinning on its axis, and he's off doing his own thing, kind of leaving people to figure things out for themselves. That's not the kind of a God he is. He is a God who speaks, a God who has spoken in the past, a God who speaks in the present, and a God who continues to speak. He's going to tell us he spoke to the prophets. He spoke through men of old. And he's going to tell us he's given his most definitive word in speaking through his son. And he's going to talk to us about the scriptures through which he still speaks. This God, this one who made us, has spoken. And he still speaks. And you'd be a fool to refuse to listen to him. And in verse 1 and 2, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That's at the beginning. And in chapter 12, toward the end, he says this in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse him. God's speaking. Listen up and don't refuse him. We're going to see this all throughout. God is a God who speaks. He has something to say, and he demands that people listen. We're going to see the high priesthood of Jesus. This is a theme all throughout. It's unique to Hebrews, and Hebrews makes this contribution to the canon, unlike anything else we see in the New Testament. The priesthood of Jesus. He's going to talk about the Old Testament sacrifices and what all those priests used to do at the temple. And he's going to say, all that stuff, Jesus is the great high priest who did in perfection what they only did as a shadow. He's the great high priest. He's going to tell us things like this that are awesome and are going to be so fun to explore. He's going to say, you remember the, the Old Testament temple? Do you remember the temple and what the priests did? They made sacrifices all day long. All day long they had to make sacrifices because people were sinning all the time. And so they had to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. There was no rest. There was no end to the sacrifices because there was no end to the sinning. 
He's going to say to us, but Jesus Christ is the great high priest who made sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then he took a seat at the right hand of the Father. Well, no priest ever took a seat. There wasn't even a seat anywhere near where the priest did their sacrifices because there was no end and there was no stop to it and there was no place to sit down. But Jesus offered a sacrifice once and for all. And the sacrifice he offered was complete and final. There was no more sacrifice to make so he could take a seat because he's a great high priest who doesn't have to keep sacrificing for sin. He did it once and it was done. It's great. It's great. We're going to have fun exploring that. We're going to talk about the danger of apostasy. Do you know what apostasy is? Yeah, it's a theological word. You know the concept, even if you don't know the word. The word simply means to fall away from faith in Christ. That's a real issue in the book of Hebrews. It's a real danger to whom, for the people to whom the, the author writes. There's a real danger that they're going to fall away. And we see him warning them all the time throughout. Let me give you a couple of examples. Chapter 10, verse 26 and following. And these are some of the most difficult texts that we'll run across in the book, and we'll have to explore them in uh, in depth. But we'll just mention them now. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. You fall away. And what's left? Judgment, fury, fire. That's frightening. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's hard. We're going to have to make sense of that. But it's a severe warning. And so this danger of apostasy, this danger of falling away, of fading away, of of abandoning Christ and reverting to something else, is a real danger that's met with real warnings all throughout this book. Apart from that, we're going to see the necessity of perseverance. I've already mentioned this a few times. All these passages that talk to us about holding fast to our confession, holding fast to our confidence, holding fast to the hope that's set before us, holding fast to our confession, running with endurance, this constant drumbeat of don't give up, persevere, stick with it, no matter what the world throws at you, no matter what life throws at you, keep your eyes on Jesus and don't turn back. He's going to tell us that's the mark of true believers. True believers struggle. True believers sin. True believers have moments where they fall. But true believers never get out of the race altogether. They keep running. They keep enduring. They keep pursuing Christ. He's going to talk to us in chapter 11 about the nature of faith. If you know anything about Hebrews, you probably know something about Hebrews 11, right? The the hall of faith, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith Enoch, by by faith Rahab, all these great people 
in the history of the church who exercised faith. And in chapter 11, he's going to talk to us about what faith is. What it, he's going to give us the best definition in all the New Testament of what faith is. And he's going to play out for us what faith looks like. And that's going to be exciting to, to, to study. But finally, we're going to see as another key thing the wrath of God. We're going to see things like verse 31 of chapter 10, which tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He's going to blow away any illusion that God is the happy, senile grandpa in the sky who just gives us whatever we want and overlooks everything stupid that we do and rebellious. No. He's going to paint a picture of a God who is merciful and gracious, who has spoken to us in His Son, who has given us everything we need to endure hard times. But He's also going to show us that He's a God that's not to be trifled with. That He's a God that's to be taken seriously. That it's a fearful thing to fall into His hands. That we're to offer Him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Because our God is a consuming fire, He's going to tell us. So we're going to see not only a a profile of Jesus, but we're going to see an image of God that is going to both encourage us, but also provide sort of a godly fear that motivates us as well. So, what do you think? Does that sound pretty good to you? Are you excited about that? I mean, that's some good stuff, isn't it? I'm excited. I want to just stay and keep going right now, but I know you don't. So we'll come back next week and we'll, we'll do that. Um, I, I just got to put a, a slide up with the outline of the book. This is a notoriously hard book to outline. If you read 20 commentaries, I'll give you a different outline. Um, I'm going to print you a one-page sheet with some of this information that will be available on our Facebook page and here next Sunday that you can have. So if you don't get all this written down, it's okay. You can just let your pencil quit smoking and... I'll print, I'll print this for you so you'll have it. Um, but I want you to just see how the book is laid out. We're going to deal with the superiority of the Christian faith, and we're going to look at how Jesus is superior to all these things that we've mentioned, and then we're going to just look at some exhortations to, to keep at it and to endure after that, all the way to the end of the book where we find some conclusion and benedictions and greetings at the end. So it's going to be a fun journey. I don't know if I am bored you stiff this morning with this little map of the road map of where we're going, or if God has somehow helped to at least pique an interest in your mind and a little bit of an appetite in your heart for some of these themes and for some of these things that we're going to look at. If I bored you stiff today, I can assure you the writer of Hebrews will not bore you stiff in the months ahead. What he has to say is remarkable, it is dramatic, and it is life-changing. And you're not going to want to miss a minute of it. I want to close by just reading Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Which I find to be really a highlight text in this letter slash sermon. That summarizes so much of the content. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to suggest to you that if you just capture the truths laid out in that one text, you'll understand Hebrews because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we overflow with excitement and anticipation at how you're going to reveal yourself to us through this study. Oh, we've enjoyed walking for these months with James and being challenged to make our faith real in the way that we live. But the heartbeat of our soul is to know you and to love you more and to walk with you more deeply, to understand more fully what you have done for us in the giving of your own life on the cross in our stead, in understanding how you sit even at this very moment interceding for us, ready to be an encouragement and a help to us on our journey. We need to be reminded, Lord, when life gets tough, to keep going. We need to be reminded when we're tempted to just walk away that we need to keep putting one foot in front of the other and never let go of our confession. We need to be called to hang on to our hope and to run with endurance the race and to not give up when it gets hard and to not get sidetracked by other things. We need that kind of encouragement in our lives. And Lord, we realize in our own human flesh there's a, this tendency to be slack and to sort of drift away. And so we need the warnings that you're going to bring us as well to snap us to reality and to keep us on track. We thank you for this wonderful letter. We thank you for the privilege we have and the freedom that we have to study it and take this journey together. We pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit, you would awaken us to the beauty and superiority of Jesus Christ. That we would see Him like we've never seen Him before. That we would love Him like we've never loved Him before. That we would be committed to run the race to maturity, to be like Him in our own lives. And that we would be committed more than ever to share Him with those who don't know Him. Lord, You must take us on this journey. And for it to be fruitful, You must make it fruitful. So we pray for that even now, for Christ's sake. Amen.